Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. I'm Sally Purcell, and in this podcast, I explore high degree research, HDR, career and employment experiences, how individuals have made career decisions, navigated transitions, and helped others to build a career. In Australia, HDR usually includes Master of Research, PhDs, and professional doctorates. I hope you enjoy this podcast. This episode was recorded via Zoom, so I apologise for any sound issues. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Dr. Rebecca Gelding. Rebecca's award-winning PhD thesis investigated what is going on in the brain as people imagine musical pitch and rhythm. Her research is featured on ABC's All in the Mind podcast, on ABC Classic and ABC Science, and in 2019, she presented at the sold-out TEDx Macquarie University event and had the audience on their feet singing. I was one of them. Earlier this year, she even played chopsticks on the Steinway & Sons piano in City Recital Hall in front of a live lunchtime audience, all in the name of science communication. Thanks for joining me today, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I'm going to start probably early on, really, and just ask you if you could talk about your undergraduate studies and how you decided upon your majors at that time. So I actually enrolled in a Bachelor of Advanced Mathematics straight out of uni and I did that because all I wanted to study when I went to uni was maths and psychology and music. They were my three areas of interest from high school and I was lucky that my parents were supportive of me pursuing whatever it is that I wanted to study and so because I'd done four unit maths and quite enjoyed it I enrolled in this advanced maths degree and then I ended up doing honours as well in theoretical physics as it turned out because and this is a marvelous thing about doing interdisciplinary undergraduate studies or at least trying to make it as broad as you can within my psychology lectures there was one lecture where they mentioned oh and there's these people doing mathematical models of the brain over in the physics department i was like who are these people i want to meet with them i was in third year at the time and i made an appointment to meet with the professor that was doing this and he was all for me coming on board to do an honours project with him, even though I'd done no physics up until that point. And so that was really fantastic. And I also was able to do a lot of music as part of my science degree uh, because I read the fine print. So within the degree, you could do a certain amount of arts units. You could do a certain amount more if you got sign off from the right people. And so I had my physical piece of paper back in the day and went around to get everybody's signature to be able to do that and managed to enroll in music courses that I hadn't done the prerequisites for just because I hadn't done all of the units that were required because I didn't have that many units to start off with. So yeah, I think my whole undergraduate experience was all about studying what was really interesting to me and realising that the rules in place for degrees have a fair bit of flexibility. You just need to get the right person's permission in order to do it. So even if it's outside of the standard structure, if you get the right people on board to champion your case, uh, you can do a fair bit. Yeah. That's really interesting that you did that though, because I never would have had that gumption or, or even that knowledge about that. How, do you, how did you know to do that? And where did you get confidence, I suppose, to follow it through? I was always one to read the terms and conditions. So yeah, as part of the degree, there was, there was rules. And so I just read the rules and yeah, I don't know if, if it was, if it said you just need to get this person's 
permission then you find out how to do that and you went to the faculty office and actually it was normally the administration staff at the faculty office that know they're the ones that have the ear into the person who needs to sign the paces. So I remember once throughout my PhD I was having a particularly bad day and the administration staff had helped me a lot and I was on the bus and I smashed out a little like a blog post about how to have friends in high places and that really means the administration staff and I wrote this part I was like rage writing like oh administration at universities like bureaucracy at universities are so frustrating but it's these administration staff that actually help you the most and I ended up sending it to the Times Higher Education and it got published on their student blog post thing. Yeah, it's it one of those funny things. So definitely don't underestimate the power of having friends in administration because they're the ones that know the processes and know who it is that needs to sign off on the different things. That is excellent advice. And yeah. it's nice of you to give kudos because, you know, often you'll hear when, particularly now we've got cutbacks, I'm sure there'll be a people suggesting that you cut back administrative staff yet as you say they are in many ways this scaffolding that things sit on because they have their fonts of knowledge and know who to go to and how to approach people and what process you have to go through. Yeah and how to solve the problems that you have because often academics they're, they're academics they're researchers they they don't necessarily know what the procedures are that are in place and what needs to happen at a big picture level they might but they don't understand the the detail and so yeah I think they're they're definitely underestimated people within the university community. Following your degree you then worked in finance area for a number of years what was that like and how did you end up in that role anyway? Yeah so when I first finished my honours I did a few things I applied for a PhD I applied for a research position role and I also had a friend that was saying, if you don't have anything, come and work for me. I'm in this finance broker business and I really need someone. The PhD I got in, but I didn't get an APA scholarship. So I would have been doing it off my own bat with no money, at least until a scholarship came through perhaps six months later. I interviewed for this research job, but then during the interview realized I really didn't have the biostatistics that the position required. And I said that I would study that, like do a master's of that while I worked, but I'm actually glad I didn't get that job because the actual interview process, <laughs> this sounds bad, but it was in a dodgy building. So I just didn't feel like that would be a fun place to work. And so because of those other two things fell through, I thought, well, I'll give my friend a go. I'll start working for, for him. And the interesting thing about working for a friend, or maybe it's just personally, once I started, I couldn't quit. I just felt like I didn't want to leave him in the lurch. And so he was a great boss and taught me a lot of things. I worked for him for two years and then we were working for Konica was our main customer, all of their regional retailers. Uh, and so Konica then joined with Minolta and when they merged, the, the business that we were doing went up for tender. And so there was us, there was just two of us doing this thing. There was the whole company of people doing Minolta's side of things and then Konica head office also had a group of people doing the head office type things. So long story short, we didn't win the tender, just two people against all these big companies. But the company that did win the tender headhunted me and said, you know, we've heard great things. Would you like to come and work for us? And 
I went to their interview and they were in a really nice building and I was like, oh, I could work here. This is really nice. But also the people were really lovely. That was with a company called Alliance Equipment Finance and I stayed there for another six, seven years or so, moving up the ranks, sort of, I guess, climbing the career ladder, although I didn't really pursue that necessarily. But I had a lot of opportunities to supervise people and to implement changes in policy and procedure and I learned about finance applications and and really getting credit for companies and looking at profit and loss and balance sheets. So I I learned a lot of skills there. It was never really a job that I was passionate about in terms of the work feeling meaningful or anything, but I certainly stayed because I really enjoyed the environment and the people. Yeah, so I spent most of my 20s doing that. It's interesting that you talk about the the building and the people you work with because they actually are quite important. So it's not just the work, it is the people you work with, can be the environment. You know, some people won't want to sit in an office all day. They'll need that capacity to move in and out of it. I I like that, I have to say. I like that about my job is that I've got that capacity to be in an office but then move out and meet up with people and go to different sort of areas because of that variety. So those things do matter. And so they might seem a a sort of unusual way to make decisions, but they do form part of that process. The interesting things you raised there too were that you felt you couldn't really leave because it was a friend. You didn't want to let let them down. And then the other part was that you really liked the environment and the people you worked with. And the work was good enough, you know, and you were good at it. So they're really good things, but at the same time, they can also keep you somewhere when you're ready to move on. So you have to really be aware of that. You talked about some of the things you learnt through that work. What do you feel that you've then been able to take from those experiences into your PhD and then your subsequent work? Definitely time management is a key, but also it's almost like customer service, but it's a professionalism. When I came to do my PhD, I saw it as a job. And therefore, when there were administration type things that need to be done, a lot of PhD students that I've seen, they haven't worked outside of academia. They've just sort of come up through the ranks. They don't really understand from other people's perspective, why these sorts of administration processes would be in place? Why do I have to do this thing? And so I think it was just an appreciation of, I'm working at a university, the university is a business of sorts. And so these people are just trying to do their jobs. And so if I'm asked to do this thing, well, I will provide all of that information and I will provide it as easily and as cleanly as possible so that it makes their job more simple. So if I'm asked to provide a budget for the PGRF application, for example, I'm going to make that as clear as possible with all of my receipts. I mean, maybe it's just the detailed kind of person that I am, but I remember submitting that PGRF application and the the finance person was like, oh, that was, that was the cleanest budget we've ever seen in terms of trying to like how to follow all of the quotes you provided and the way that I'd labeled everything. And so I think it's just trying to be as professional as I can as a student in in everything that I face. Um, But definitely time management, when you're working, especially in finance, it would have these monthly deadlines. And so end of month was always a crazy period of time because you'd be trying to complete all of these processes so that transactions settled in time so that it hit people's budgets for that month so because bonuses and things were paid on how much was settled in a month so because of these monthly deadlines 
I learnt the skills uh, required to be able to plan across the month to meet deadlines at the end of the month. And so the, the same was true when I came to my PhD. I would set these goals when you do the annual progress report and you plan out what you're going to do the following year. I did the same thing. I was saying, well, by March, I'm going to achieve this. And so that helped me then be able to plan what do I need to achieve in January, February in order to hit that target at, at March. You know, as you said, you're a detailed person. You also have this training that you got through working in the finance area. I guess other people might work differently. So it's trying to find what works for you. I imagine having those deadlines. I know I'm someone that if I have a deadline, I'll meet it. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. The temptation is because the deadlines that we put in place are artificial in some respects, it is a little bit of a temptation just to not actually make them a deadline and just go, oh, it doesn't really matter if I don't hit them. But I tried as much as possible not to do that. So at at the start, for the majority of my PhD, I would say if I put a deadline in, then I was going to meet that. And even if that meant staying up really late at night, if I said to my supervisor, I'm going to have that to you by Friday, I was doing that by Friday. And maybe that was at the start I was trying to prove myself to, but certainly towards the end when I realised that, for example, conference deadlines, I would be like madly trying to do it and then you'd see that they extended the thing and you're like, oh, and then towards the end I was like, oh, they'll extend it. I'll, I'll just, I'll do that late because I know that they're going to extend it anyway. So. Yeah, it's a dangerous thing that, isn't it? Yeah. But the other thing I'm picking up talking to you though is when you were talking about working in finance, And then you're talking about the people working in administration roles within the university. And then also, you know, saying to your supervisor, I'll get that to you, is that you mentioned the word professionalism. There's also, to me, a level of empathy, that capacity to put yourself in someone else's shoes and understand it from there. Yep. You mentioned that, you said they've got their job to do. So I will make it as easy as possible because you know what that's like from the other side. You're able to make the system run more smoothly we talked about that earlier about yes. photographs of the right size yeah which you know you've given me for the newsletter and to get that in the right size makes so much difference to me because I don't have to keep going back and asking for it I don't have to then really work hard to try and resize a photograph that doesn't really fit the dimensions so you know you've you've illustrated that already to me <laughs> and so yeah just that capacity to really listen to instructions, understand the impact that might have on the people, but also on the process that you're involved in, which ultimately will benefit you as well. Empathy is actually really important. And it's one of those things that people don't often think about. And the most empathetic people probably don't even realise they're empathetic. It puts you in good stead in so many aspects of life. Yeah. Yeah, I did read years ago and it was talked about there's no pure altruism. Because even if you get a a good feeling from it, then that's still a reward. When you can be altruistic and you are acting out of empathy, it's a good feeling. And I don't really understand why people don't operate in the world that way. Yeah, yeah. It's how I see the world. So I don't understand why everyone doesn't do that. Yeah. Anyway, not in charge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you returned to university to complete a Master's of Education. How did you come to make that decision? So I think, as I mentioned in the finance company that I was working with, the work itself wasn't that challenging or interesting. And so I was looking for things that would, I was looking for new things to learn, I guess. Um, And at the same time I joined, because it was a local, I, I worked at Macquarie Park and I was living at Epping and 
we had joined the new brand new opened Macquarie University gym, my husband and I, uh, and he was an alumni of Macquarie because he had done his undergraduate studies there. I actually did my undergraduate at Sydney Uni. And so he was getting half price gym membership because he was an alumni. They had this special deal to, because they just opened the gym. Uh, and I did not think that it was fair that I was going to pay double the price that he was paying. And so I remember asking the front desk, does a a part-time postgraduate student qualify for student membership and they said yes and that was all I needed and I um, downloaded the postgraduate prospectus and started flipping through to see well what could I study that was going to be in line with my work a little bit because they would pay for extra studies that we wanted to do uh, if it was in line with work and so I settled on a master of education because I had thought oh, well maybe I could become a teacher. Like I really quite enjoyed the training and things that I was doing uh, in the workplace. And so I did this, uh, enrolled in this Masters of Education, focusing on adult education, adult learning. And I did five subjects, I think it was, uh, before I then fell pregnant with my, with my daughter, with our first child. Uh, and at that point, I put studying on hold while I had her. And in between, and I had another child as well, but in between them, I did a little bit of work just from home doing reporting and things for the business. And then I finished work because I thought now that I've got kids, I do not want to put them in full-time daycare so that I can go back to this job that I'm not that passionate about anyway. And so I thought, well, I'll finish this master's. So I had three subjects left to do. And I thought, well, I'd, I'm more interested now in how do I be a good parent? How do I best develop my children? How do I teach them language and emotional intelligence and everything like that? And so the final three subjects, again, reading the fine print, I worked out that you can do a lot of self-designed courses in, in a master's level. You can sort of create your own syllabus for a subject as long as you find a supervisor that will help you do that. And so I found uh, Anne McMore was fantastic in the education department. So she and I did a few subjects together. I did a literature review subject where I looked at parenting programs and the best ones for helping children. And then I de designed one subject actually involved me doing the research on how to help parents with children in their terrible twos. And then I produced a flyer for parents, which I was really proud of that really showed, you know, how, how do you actually train parents to be able to help their children go through this phase of their development. And yeah, so, so again, I read the fine print and was able to finish off this master's focusing on areas that I was really interested in. And as part of that, throughout that master's, both Anne and one of the other lecturers had said to me, you should do a PhD. This is really your thing. You seem to really thrive in this environment. And so research, they encouraged me to do that. And Anne was actually the Master of Research coordinator. And so she had said, they're bringing in this new Master of Research degree that you need to do in order to qualify for a PhD. That was in 2014 that was coming in. So she, this was 2012. She said, if you don't enroll next year in a PhD, then you'll have to do an extra year of study in order to qualify. So if you ever thought about doing a PhD, you should do it next year. I, I wanted to do a PhD, but I figured it would be in like a psychology area. And because I hadn't actually had a Bachelor of Psychology, I wasn't sure that I would qualify to do a PhD in psychology. Because I've been looking at ch children and development, I was sort of getting interested in that. Uh, and so I applied for the Master of Research in Psychology. 
I think it was maybe I just didn't back myself that I would be able to get into a PhD without that Master of Research because my honours had been in something quite different. And then I went along to the Master of Research Information evening. So I applied for it before I went to the information evening. And at the information evening, I met the uh, cognitive science representative that was on the panel. And I had never even heard of cognitive science as, as a discipline, but I realised actually that's what I'm more interested in, the brain and how that affects the behaviour and everything. Uh, and so after that discussion, I submitted a PhD application in cognitive science and was able to talk with Blake Johnson, who was my main supervisor in the end. I approached him because he had done some MEG studies with children and emotional development. And so I went and spoke with him and said as an offhand thing, I don't suppose you do much with, does anyone do much with the brain and music? And he's, oh, yes, we do. We have this guy, he's in, he's in psychology. And I was like, wow, I could actually do music and the brain. Like I could do a PhD in this. That's amazing. And so the fact that that set me off so excited, I realized that's what I needed to pursue, not emotional regulation necessarily. And so I submitted this PhD application in music and in the brain. And the funny thing is, I submitted that application and I was walking out of the building. I'll always remember this. I get a phone call and it's from someone from psychology and he's saying, hi, I'm, I've just got your master of research application in front of me here. I actually really think that you should just go ahead and do a PhD. And I think you should do it in cognitive science <laughs> based on what you've written. I really think that you should just do that. I was like, that's so great because that's literally what I've just handed in an application to do that. So yeah, so that's that's what happened. And I ended up part-time with a scholarship to do a PhD in cognitive science. And that, I started that in 2013. And my first day was my daughter's first day of preschool. It was meant to be. Meant to be. <laughs> and we're very glad you did that. <laughs> so, <laughs> who have been the major influences in relation to your career decisions? So I think I mentioned earlier that I was lucky enough to have parents who encouraged me to pursue education in whatever it is that I wanted to study. But particularly my dad was a real advocate for education. Uh, he himself uh, had tried to follow in his big brother's footsteps and went off to university to study science because that's what they both did. And he failed <laughs> miserably. <laughs> but he ended up as a teacher, he trained, retrained as a teacher. And he was actually a really good teacher. By the time I came along, he had left teaching and was working in industry at IBM. But he definitely instilled a love of learning in both my brother and I. And my brother went on to do an MBA. So he had always wanted me to do a PhD, but I never felt pressured like I had to. And when I started my PhD in that 2013 in February, in the April of that year, so that's only two months later, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer the day after his 65th birthday, which really sucks. And he, he passed away in the January, so he didn't even live another 12 months. But the best thing I'll always remember, one of the most fondest memories of that year was because I was a part-time PhD student, they had to reassess my status as a scholarship holder. It was only for one year that they would uh, give me a scholarship. And so at the end of that first year, I had to show them what I had achieved in order for them to renew my scholarship for another year. Uh, and to do that, my supervisor wrote a letter of 
recommendation to sort of say, yes, she should keep it. And he wrote such a glowing reference. And I remember showing it to my dad and it said that I was in the top 5% of PhD students that my supervisor had ever seen. And my dad's face was just glowing when he read that. And he even thought, like, I think he like sent it to family and stuff. And he was like, oh, look at this. You know, he's just so proud. And so it's sad that he then never saw me go on and achieve what I did achieve. But I sort of, yeah, I think I did. I did all of this with his blessing, but I didn't do it with like with any pressure from him to do it. I just know that he would have been so proud of me. Yeah, it's lovely to know that. In our previous chats, you've mentioned that they were completely supportive, your parents, and more like on the sidelines cheering you on rather than dictating to you. So that's really lovely that he got to see that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was funny, I was reflecting with my kids, we were talking about school reports coming out and they said that some of their friends get, you know, rewards if they get certain grades, but the grades were never a big deal. They expected us to get good grades, but there was never any like, oh, if you get an A, then we'll give you this present or something. They were just always about instilling a internal motivation rather than providing that external yeah, and so I was trying to convince my son that it's the same because like, he was basically saying, "Can he?" I'm like, "No, you, you need to have your own internal motivation to do your work. I'm not providing you with anything." Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, I I had the same um approach. Yeah, and they did just fine. Yeah. So you recently started in a new position with the University of Sydney. Could you talk about what that role entails and how your PhD and your other education, employment and your personal experiences have shaped you and informed your work? So the role that I'm at now is I'm the project officer for the Sydney node of a new ARC Centre of Excellence for children and families across the life course. It's quite a tongue twister. Basically, I facilitate the research of the centre at the Sydney University node. And so I'm not primarily responsible for the research that is done there, but that research actually looks at the cognitive science of disadvantage from an economic perspective. So I'm within the, uh, the School of Economics. I'm helping with the budgeting tools and with the processes and administration required in order for the researchers to do the research themselves and it's a fantastic position to be in because with the PhD background I understand what it's like for the students and for the early career researchers. I know the things that will benefit them but I also have the perspective of being on the other side and the responsibility is not mine to do the research and so I can actually just get on and and do the fun things that I actually really enjoy, organising events and making sure that just things get done. I really, I, I really love having a list of things that need to be done and working through that and getting getting things ticked off the list and that everything is, I sound really like black and white, but I think part of the problem with research I found was there was no definitive answers. Even though you do this big whole PhD, you're like, what did I find? I'm like, I'm not even really sure. And so I, I'm really enjoying that, well, I need to do these things. I do those things. Ah, oh, job well done. I can leave it for the day and come back. I don't have that feeling of there's more work to be done. There's another paper to be read. I still need to do these other things. Mm. Yeah, it's got that clarity. And I guess you, you talked about your undergraduate degree, which was in maths and so sort of clear answers. Yes. <laughs> I really loved the, the favourite 
kind of maths is the one that gives you the answer at the end. Prove this equals this. You're like, excellent. I know where I'm heading. I just have to get there. Whereas it was in your research, especially with brain data, it's like, I'm trying to answer this question. Well, what analysis do I do? Well, it depends. I'm like, well, what does it depend on? Well, it depends on lots of things. And you're just like this tree of different options and you're making a million decisions. All of them seem somewhat arbitrary and you get a result and you're like, is that really true? I could have made all these other decisions and I might've got a different result. So I, I think that's the nature of science, but going into it, because I had this background of right and wrong sort of thing, I thought it would be more definitive and yeah, realizing that it's, a lot more grey than I had thought. It wasn't that satisfying. <laughs> yeah, and that's the stuff you learn along the way, isn't it? When you're exactly. working and you're studying and you get to know yourself more. And, and then the hard thing can often be working in research and science academia is to recognise that and be okay with that. Other people love that. For me, I love other things. And that's good because I really love that research is done and I like elements of it myself but I really love to facilitate other people's and to be very clear on what my role is and that I have achieved this and helped this person to do this. And then I can feel yeah. a sense of satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. And celebrating their research. I think it's hard to sort of blow your own trumpet for too long. Like it sort of leaves a bad taste at the back of my throat, you know, and you're like, so, <laughs> so I really love communicating other people's research and showing the great work that they've been doing. Mm. Yeah. And that's definitely needed more than ever. <laughs> so one of the things that you did talking about communication, you gave a fabulous TED talk at the TEDx Macquarie. Thank you. I was lucky enough to be in that audience. Got to sing. <laughs> yes. They, they were so loud. I got everyone to stand up and sing and I was blown away by the volume. I was like, oh, I did not expect that. It was great. I was so glad that everybody got into it. Now everyone can watch it. So I'll put yeah. that on. With that experience, how did that come about? So one of the main organizers of the event, Hosai Ghul, I had met through Twitter and on a few occasions we'd spoken and then we met in real life at a few different events or she'd been part of a Shut Up and Write um, on a Friday morning that was in the Australian Institute of Health Innovation. I wasn't even in that institute, but they were welcoming to let me come along. So I went along to their Shut Up and Writes. This was quite near the end of my PhD. I went along a few times and she had mentioned that she was going to be organising this TED event. And I mentioned offhand to her that the last time that the university had run one in 2014, I'd been in that three-minute thesis competition and they had announced at the final, I was in the final, they had announced that the winner would be doing their three-minute talk again the following day at the TEDx event at Macquarie. And I remember thinking, oh, I hope I don't win then because that would be just nerve-wracking to have to do that again. And thankfully, I came second and I was like, yes, that's like the best because I don't have to keep going, but I can feel like I've achieved something. So I was really happy. And she was like, but wouldn't you want to speak at a TEDx event? And I thought, oh, no, I don't think I would. Oh, I think that would be too scary. Anyway, fast forward a few months and she sends me a message to say hey do you want to have a chat about uh, speaking at the TEDx event <laughs> I was like oh and sometimes throughout my PhD there was opportunities that would come up and sometimes I would feel this level of fear come up and I made a conscious decision that whenever I felt that I wouldn't let that determine whether or not I would do the opportunity before me and so I thought well that actually scares the things out of me but I thought oh, why not? Okay, yes, I'll do it. 
And so then because I had given my yes and said I would do it, then I had to do it to the best of my ability because that's just what I do. And I thought it's going to be recorded. So I have to, you know, you only get one opportunity. So then I put the work in to really make that. But it was definitely the most nerve wracking experience that I've ever had. The actual presentation was like my mouth was dry and I was like my heart was going and yeah, it was very nerve wracking. Are you glad you did it? Very glad, very glad. Yeah, amazing opportunity. And now when I get up to give a presentation or I'm asked to do anything, I think, well, it can't be as bad as, I can't be as nervous as I was that day. (laughs) Right, you made it. Yes, yep. So what did you learn about yourself then? Through that experience, what did I learn? I think it really honed in that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I also learnt what I saw in through that process were the people that the the organisers, the whole team were brilliant at giving feedback constructively. And so I really learnt to take on feedback and a lot of the suggestions they made definitely improved the whole presentation. They were the ones that suggested get everyone to stand up when they sing and I I get people to do this task and then I had originally sort of said, you know, nod your head or shake your head or whatever. And they're like, no, no, get them to put up their hands so that you can see, you can look around and see, oh, you thought this and oh, you thought that. I thought, oh, that's... So lots of little ideas like that that came from a lot of different people that came with their different perspectives was really helpful. But I think the feedback that I got from people, it, it really helped me take on board feedback. I mean, they gave it in a very lovely way as well, uh, which always helps. I think through that process, not only did I learn to take on feedback, but I learnt then how to give feedback because I saw the ways that they gave it and I was really impressed with their the, the way they were able to give their perspectives and to help make it a better presentation. So they're the main takeaways. And and I guess I it increased my confidence that I can do it that I can get up and give a presentation and yeah, yeah, yeah. If I have those days, you know, when you're feeling like an imposter, I can go, well, I did do that. That's true. <laughs> I reckon that's true. The more of those things you do, the more you can go, well, I got through that. So what is important to you in work and career? Oh, that's a really good question. And I don't think people reflect on that enough. Sometimes we just rush through life and we don't think about what it is that we really want. And so when I finished my PhD, I think I'd mentioned already, I sort of wasn't feeling up to do research, was a bit drained by the processes of research and the writing and the the feedback of reviewers is often not nice and it it just cuts you down and everything. And my, my skin just wasn't thick enough. So I really sat and reflected on what are the parts of the PhD that gave me joy? What were the things that I did during this past, what did it take me, like six, seven years part-time? What were the things that I really enjoyed? And I really do enjoy communicating. I love teaching. I love taking an idea that I'm excited about and then seeing someone else go, oh, that's having that, sharing that excitement with someone else and having them go, oh yeah, that sort of fills me with joy. And so And I also really like processes. I like having a job that I can come to and go home from. And so that was the types of those sorts of thinking then got me now in a space where, well, what's important to me at this point in my life is my family and 
having a job that I can go to and come home from where I feel like I'm contributing to research because I still love universities and in the intellectual environment that universities offer, but I am not responsible for generating that knowledge. And so it's finding where do I fit in within the big picture and how can I do that as well as the other parts of my life. And so this particular role that I'm in now is really ideal for me. And especially now that we're actually having to work from home, it's even better because I've actually really loved this. It's a juggle with kids at home too. And so when the kids go back, that will be even better. But I really think that this is great for me. This is like the most ideal of situations to be working from home, facilitating research and doing tasks that are interesting, but without the responsibility of the never ending list of things to do, I think gets a bit overwhelming. No, it's good. You've really thought about that and followed through with it. And, you know, you are actually making that happen, which I think is really good. A lot of people might even think about what matters to them but then the next step is looking for opportunities that fit that and then taking action. Yeah and I did feel there was a a little bit of pressure not to do this like a lot of people thought I was crazy because my PhD was well received like I got the vice chancellor's commendation and then I've had papers published and you know the TED talk and then it's everyone's like well why would you throw that away and I'm like I'm not throwing anything away I'm just pursuing a a different avenue and it doesn't mean that I won't come back and do research but for right now this is where I feel like I needed some stability and yeah I'm really really quite happy where I am right now. Yes you're making choices that fit you not living as someone else thinks you should live which is just very good I see too many people making career choices based on what other people think they should be doing. Yeah, no, I'm trying to go my own journey. I think I always have. It does sound like it. (laughs) So I look forward to following your continuing journey and I'm going to go back and watch that TED Talk. (laughs) Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a great chat. Thanks. Cool, no worries. You have just listened to an episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast about the career and employment experiences of high degree researchers that is, Master of Research, PhD and Professional Doctorate candidates, graduates and others in the HDR ecosystem. You can also find me on Twitter as ResourcefulHDR and on LinkedIn, Sally Purcell at Macquarie University. Macquarie University students and staff can also access the HDR Professional Development iLearn site. Mm